hello to there's no one watching at the moment so we're talking to ourselves but let me introduce chris so that the people that are watching this back uh, know i mean shame on you if you don't know who this man is already i would i would say um dr chris bishop uh university of adelaide uh director of the biomechanics lab in uh, in adelaide and um we met when I was down in Australia, and he was he was uh, he was he was a great host when I was when I was in Perth, and we had we had some good fun. And ultimately, we wanted to get him on to talk about two D versus three D because of the three of us here, he is the only one that has a three D system. So we thought he would be best placed to to field some questions and then and start some debate and give us his take on it. So, um, uh, how do you want to do it, Craig? Do you want to do you want to pitch a question straight off yeah well i, I yeah th- thanks for introducing chris I, I think i'll just add to that and say congratulations on the birth of your second child um if chris looks a bit tired he's just come straight from the hospital um but i think chris if you can just perhaps bring it up to speed on what just 2d versus 3d is then we'll get into some of the questions that we had yeah no absolutely look thanks for having me guys it's um it's good to be here and uh yeah, so look, thanks for having us. Um, so I'm sharing it live and I'm getting two different lags after uh, a few seconds. Um, so I guess <clears throat> with, with recent technology and look, uh, 3D analysis has been around for some time in a, in a research practice, probably since, you know, the early 1980s where Barry Bates and co were, you know, some of the first proponents of, um, of, of tracking motion in 3D and even you know um, uh, tracking horses was well before well before that. But of, of recent um, dates, there's been a lot of interest, particularly in the in the podiatry world, but also human movement and biomechanics around multi-segment foot modelling um, and and the role that 3D gait analysis can have in terms of understanding uh, foot and ankle motion and human human motion. Obviously, um, in, in, in podiatry or, or uh, in, in any health practice, we're, we're deemed to be some of the, you know, the, the experts in, in, in gait analysis. And I guess when we look at analysing stuff in, in 2D, the, the biggest issue we have is that a human body doesn't move in 3D, uh, move in 2D, sorry. It moves in three dimensions. So when we analyse in 2D, we're actually not seeing all the complexity of the movement of the human body. Now, someone can sit there and say, right, fantastic, we can do a visual gate analysis and our eyes can see in 3D. But some of the issues that we see there, which isn't always the, the case, but when the issues do pop up is that the natural sampling frequency of our eyes can't necessarily always see that the, the natural frequency of, of high-speed movement, say jumping, running, uh, sprinting, those sort of things. So what we end up doing is processing minute parts of the actual complex information that's occurring and we can actually start to miss some information. So that's where 3D comes in. And what 3D can do is not only track the movement of the body in, in three dimensions, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, but where I really find it quite useful is when you can actually um, uh, synchronise that with things like force platforms, EMG measurements, even plantar pressure systems to sit there and start getting an understanding of real-world kinetics because, you know, Craig will be the proponent of this more than I am. Um, but force is what does the motion. And for me... There's no such thing as a normal movement pattern and there's no such thing as a normal kinematic curve. And this is the issue that I've got when we just analyse kinematics is what are we trying to reference against? 
what are we trying to achieve when we're looking at a kinematic curve? And, you know, I ask the same of someone with a gait retraining. You know, we'll sit there and give cues of gait retraining to change someone's kinematics or movement profiles. Really what we're doing throughout the process is actually changing forces being applied to the body. So for me, it's, it's really about understanding the forces being applied on the body, the forces being generated by the muscles and, and therefore the forces being applied on joints so we can start to influence the sort of load and, and, the, and the stress placed on our tissues and that's the, the, the basis of tissue stress theory. So 3D gait analysis allows us to do that. And, and it allows us to get a really complex understanding of human movement. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that 3D gait analysis is required for every one of my patients. I'll declare right now that I have a 3D gait lab and I, and I use a 3D gait lab in my clinic and I use one um, in my practice. But I'll also be clear that 3D gait analysis only accounts for less than 3% of my total practice in terms of patients that are seen. Every patient that comes and sees me for a 3D gait analysis gets a 2D gait analysis beforehand. And of 100% of the patients that actually see me, maybe even they've asked to come and get a 3D gait analysis, close on 96 97% don't actually end up going to the 3D because 2D has actually answered some of the problems that I may have. You know, it may be that I've just got them on a force platform and they've done a squat, so I'm not saying I'm not using that technology. But to go to the full 3D, I'm not saying I use it on everybody. But when I need a complex understanding of human movement, or I need an understanding of not only the kinematics, but the, the kinetics in terms of the joint moments, ground reaction forces, centre of pressure, those sort of things, that's what 3D gait analysis can, uh, can give me. So, yes, it's complex, but it gives us a really complex solution, but it addresses the limitations that are there in, in, in any 2D analysis. Yeah, great. Thank, thanks, Chris. Yeah, that, that, that sums it up really well. The... One thing that I really hammer in on my boot camp course is the, the principle of not doing any clinical test, whether it's an X-ray, 3D, whatever, unless the outcome of that test has the potential to alter the treatment. Yep. So my next question is, what is the potential of a 3D gait analysis versus a 2D gait analysis to alter the treatment? Yeah, absolutely, and this is uh, this is a great point, and and something that we um, we we've spent a lot of time of, of recently, and I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question in regards to some findings that are unpublished at the moment for my PhD. So, for those that don't know, my PhD was in um, the management of plantar fasciopathy with footwear and foot orthotics, and what we showed there is that a change or increasing the net external dorsiflexion moment around the calcaneus or around the hind foot was associated with a reduction in first step pain, a reduction in average 24-hour pain, but also a reduction in plantar fascia thickness on ultrasound after 12 weeks. So what that says to me is if I can go and model and show a change in net external dorsiflexion moment or show a reduced dorsiflexion moment that may necessarily need to be increased by an external device, that is allowing me to target an orthotic prescription variable of what I need to occur. There was also the same um, relationship, albeit a little bit weaker, for the net external inversion moment during um, the first uh, aspect of stance as well. So for me... 
everything has to be about being changing outcomes. What am I doing? When I'm looking at changing outcomes, I'm looking at going, how is my treatment going to sit there and change as a result of doing this program? And that's the reason why it's only accounting probably for 5% of my patients because I'm looking at going, where is the force being applied? And I might start with 2D. But if I can't sit there and go, this kinematics looks normal for this individual or they're quite a high level and they haven't had a problem before, but all of a sudden they started developing a problem, I'm wanting an understanding of where that ground reaction force is being applied. You know, I'm, I'm wanting an understanding of where that pressure is sitting within the, within the foot. But most importantly, I'm looking for a guide that sometimes explain, you know, it's similar to the aspect of explain the flat foot that doesn't cause a problem versus the flat foot that does cause a problem. But all of a sudden, the flat foot that doesn't cause a problem, that sits there and starts completing a marathon training, but over time, all of that centre of pressure is located in the medial column of the foot. We've got a reduced inversion moment, and all of a sudden, if we look to increase that, we move the centre of pressure into the lateral aspect of the foot, and therefore not loading the navicular, not loading the medial column. You know, we've got the ground reaction force lateral or acting less lateral, reducing the medial moment arm relative to the ankle joint. We're reducing the stresses, therefore acting on the medial compartments of, the, of those of those joints. So for me, it's, it's a, I'll be honest, it's a little bit of an unknown quantity. And, and I know there's a number of researchers looking in and around this space at the moment in allied health. I'll direct to an aspect of, of some papers that looked at um, the use of 3D gait analysis in the management of cerebral palsy and, surgical, and certainly surgical decision-making. And I'm not going to quote the paper directly, but um, if you go and ask, sit there and ask the guys from the, the Children's Hospital in, in Melbourne um, or even some of the um, Gillette Gate Labs out of, out of the US... I think the stats are sitting there at about 25 to 30% of surgical cases are actually either manipulated or not done as a result of the findings of some yeah, gate analysis. Um, that's where we need to go. Um, but we also need advocates to go, we believe in gate analysis. We believe in what 3D can do. We'll address the financial aspects later, but support that because, you know, the, the three or four guys in the world using this in a clinical setting isn't enough to really show changes in outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that sort of yeah, sort of answered my next question, which was how do you choose the ones that you're going to do the 3D on? So I think you answered that. My next question would be what about um, the issue of using 3D for gait retraining type issues versus the use of 3D regarding perhaps a different orthotic prescription? Because so, I see yeah. them two totally different issues. Oh, absolutely. And I guess I'll, I'll declare, and I'll probably get in trouble with it, I'm not the biggest fan of gait retraining. Um, it, I'm sure it works and I also declare is that I'm probably not up with it and you know in terms of the latest evidence and you know if we have a gate retraining concert talk it's probably worthwhile getting someone like a Christian Barton or something on the, on the line um, but for me there's some really interesting biofeedback applications that are out there at the moment. <clears throat> so, for example, like I've got a Treadmetrics treadmill, a guy called Steve Swanson out of the US, and I'm not designing to plug him. Um, but what he's developed, and I've got access to this, you think of it almost like as a red-green a red -green traffic system. You can actually have a TV in front of you. You're on an instrumented treadmill with the ground reaction forces, and whatever metric that you're wanting to try and retrain, let's think about that as the 
the peak of the vertical ground reaction force. It's almost like you've got a red and a green situation in front of you on the TV. It's either red, you haven't changed it, green, you have. So it gives that sort of stimulus to the, to the patient to be able to go, yes, this has changed, no, it hasn't. But I'm a big fan of the central nervous system is dictated to the way that someone wants to run. Um, and probably in at least 95% of my patients, if I manage the, the load being applied on that individual, I've found I don't really need to change uh, their running patterns. You got your question in? I do, I do actually, yeah. Um, I, think I, know, I think I know where you land on this because you, you touched on it in your, your first opening bit. But one of the biggest um, discussion points here in the UK with, with the... The company that have got the, the, I guess, the biggest presence here, and that, that pitch out to us as clinicians, yep. this concept of, of their, <clears throat> excuse me, this concept of their normative database that yep. they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's several hundred uh, asymptomatics that have, have then been knee pulled, um, and then they give you this sort of line, and then every time you analyze a patient, you you tell them whether they are excessive. Or, or not based on on this mean and mm-hmm. I, I mean I, I just i wonder firstly what your take is on it but secondly what what, what are the alternatives because i can see I, even though i don't agree with it i can sort of see why they do it um, <laughs> is, is there a better alternative okay i'm going to answer this in, in two ways i've got a massive issue with it but it also i'll go on the other end of the spectrum is it always it also makes interpretation very very easy because you can look at this normative curve you go that's what we should be and then we go this is where our curve is and as a general principle if 100 200 runners are running that way that's sort of a large enough you know we won't get into our topic of sample size but it's a large enough population that you're getting a general trend of the population so what it provides is something to aim towards and, and aiming rehab I find it, it's, it's the, I call it the cheat solution to gain analysis because it doesn't require you to actually understand how to interpret a clinical gait report to be able to manage your patient. Because what happens if they don't need to increase the amount of knee flexion they've got if they present to reduce flexion because there's a change in a knee extension moment? What happens if all of a sudden they're, you know, they, they don't have much knee flexion but purely they're, they're an overstrider? Changing someone's kinematic pattern is not necessarily going to reduce the loads being applied on that on that tissue. But at the same time, I've got my own unique DNA. You've got your own unique DNA. Craig's got their own unique DNA. We've got our own unique capacity to be able to handle load. And therefore saying to me, oh, you need to run this way because that's the way that our normative database works is, is wrong in my aspect. It is what are the symptoms what are we trying to do and how do we understand what those inf- that information is? I'll give you a better way or the way that we do it in our lab is that we will sit there and go, what's your goal? And I'm going to target this towards running. And the goal might be to sit there and run four-minute Ks. But at the moment, they're running at five-minute Ks. So we will model them at five minutes, 4.30s, four-minute Ks, but then 3.30 Ks as well. And we will look there over time, and we might run in some gas analysis, or but let's just limit this to kinematics and, and kinetics at the moment. What are the differences between those time points? 
how do we induce fatigue on this individual and how does their individual pattern adapt over time in terms of both their kinematics and their kinetics? If we get them then to run, you know, and do a, a quasi-VO2 max test, try and induce a level of fatigue, how does their pattern change over time? Because I'm a big believer when someone's fresh, that's their generic pattern. And I want to sit there and balance that and that get that sustained over a period of time. Because when do people report they actually get a problem? People don't report they get a problem in the first five minutes of running unless they've got an acute injury. People go, I'm getting pain 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes down the, down the road. And that's the thing is going, well, what do we assume or what must we assume is going the problem there? It must be that there's a level of fatigue induced. So I need to model that and I need to go, well, what is it about them that's changing? So it's an intra-subject analysis. It's not an inter-subject analysis. It's not I'm comparing myself to you, Ian, or you, Craig, or the rest of the Facebook world out there. I'm comparing my patient to my patient. And I'm wanting them to have the foundation that allows them to complete that marathon or that half marathon or that 10K, 10K event. So for me, I don't find much clinical benefit in terms of change of outcomes having a normative database there. Now, I probably have two to 3,000 runners in my database um, of, you know, of, of gait analysis files that I can create an outstanding database at the moment. But for me, I don't think that's going to change the way I manage my patients because they're all unique. The way they move is unique and I much get much better results by managing their individual profiles. Understanding how to actually interpret a, a, a joint moment, understanding how to, you know, influence kinetics. And I won't get into the discussion about how many presentations I've given to podiatrists and, and, and physios around the world that have asked me what a joint moment is in question time. Like, I think there's a level of upskilling required <laughs> um, there. But at the same time, if I then go right back to the start and go, what does a normative do? My biggest concern with where this technology is going is that it's going to become a marketing ploy and the normative curve gives someone an excuse not to understand how to model someone's patterns, how to sit there and actually interpret the report and just go, I'm aiming for a particular number. And if I get that number or if I get your curve within that waveform, I've done my job. What happens if that patient doesn't get better? You're sitting within the normative curve and you've still got symptoms. What happens then? And that's the question they can't answer. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting just I, on I, that. I, I, think, I think that's spot on. Yeah, yeah just, just on that topic of the normative database in the last, I don't know, three or four months, I'd hate to think how many times in social media I've read comments, especially by physiotherapists, about um, the correct sitting posture and all those kinds of issues, and absolutely bagging the idea of it, that a lot of these alleged bad postures are just normal variations. So right. I think it's not, it's not just us with 3D kinematics. It's, it's you know, uh, sitting postures. There's, just a, there's a range. Um, actually, interesting on the, the issue of joint moments, if you really dwell down to it, to me, a joint moment is really a key determinant of injury. Hmm. Uh, and a joint moment is determined of running economy. I mean, it's that important, but like you, I get questions, what's a joint moment? You know, a joint moment is probably what determines the loads in the tissues that we're mm. dealing with. I mean, it's, you know, chemistry, it's, it's 101, you know, biomechanics 101. I, I, I get, I, I roll my eyes a lot on that. So, yeah. Well, you know, at its simplest form, you can define it as the rotational, the rotational force allowing the movement to occur. Oh, yeah. 
But yeah, the- that, that is a really simple definition oh, that yeah. I think people take away. But you know, you look at what you're doing. It's irrespective of your kinematics. Mm-hmm. You've got a you've got a moment arm, which is going to be your distance, and you've got your force. Moment equals force times distance. In order to influence your moment, you're either increasing or decreasing your force or your moment arm. When someone runs, if we're not gait retraining, I think your force is relatively modifiable. So if we're not changing foot strike, um, uh, foot strike patterns and those sort of things. So let's assume that force is constant, which I think in most instances is. You're changing the moment arm. So to either increase or decrease a net external moment, you've got to change your moment arm. And therefore, you've got to manipulate the position of the centre of pressure of the foot or the centre of pressure of the force being applied on the foot. And the acute effect that you can have on the foot is it might be a very, very small change in a moment um, acting around the subtalar joint or the, um, or, the, um, or the ankle. But as that goes higher up the proximal chain, that's becoming any subtle change at the level of the foot is going to be, you know, three, four, five times magnified at the level of the knee, never mind magnified at the level of the hip. And that's why everyone asks me, go, well, what is the role of the foot at the level of knee and hip pathology? I said, it's huge. And I said, but it's not about motion. It's about influencing the loads being applied on the knee and the, and the hip. And I think there's a really big role. Yeah, no, yeah, no thanks for that. Um... Got any, any questions, Ian? Yeah, um, well, I've got some that um, that Simon Simon uh, messaged us just before we came online. I think you saw them actually, Chris. Um, yep. We need to we need need to obviously get onto discussion of the cost. I think Simon brought yep. up, you know, like oh, why why is it so expensive? Um, also, what what do we do about it if if we do want this to uh, become more commonplace and, and and obviously there would be potential value in that. Uh, what, what do we actually do about that? How how, how can we... Because it's completely unreal uh, for 95% of clinicians right now, if not, if not more. Yeah, look, and, 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 I, and I appreciate that. I'm going um, to try this share screen thing that Craig spoke to me about. Can anyone see my, um, my screen? Yeah, it's starting, it's starting up now. Yeah, it's just about to start. It's starting up now. Up. Doing this, doing it now. Yep. Okay. Can you see the? Um, only because I'm not getting feedback yep. here. But can you see? We can see, we can see your screen. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Look down here at Flex Three. In our lab, I actually ran an honors student project with Laura Hutchinson, um, looking at a published in Journal of Science and Medicine and Sport, looking at the effects of. Um, uh, full orthotics posted and neutral shoes on uh, tibial rotation. We use 12 Flex 3 cameras at 599 bucks. We added to that a $1,500 um, uh, modeling software. So we're sitting there at about 7500 bucks. I'll stress that this is kinematic only. You go and add a, a force platform, that's where you're going to add some price. But I know I'm probably addressing Simon Spooner's comment here um, in terms of run 3D. Um, and I think he said, and I, I apologise, I'll just stop sharing and come back. Um, I apologise if I'm getting these numbers wrong, but I've been told forty to $50,000. Now, I'm not sure if that's 50. Hey, you might be hey, better to answer this, Ian. Is it 50,000 pounds, US, Australian? What is it? 
So Run 3D in the UK, I believe if you buy it outright, is £36,000. Um, or there's a sort of £800 a month um, leasey kind of system, I, b- I believe, last time yeah, I checked. Okay. So I'm listening, I'm sitting there and saying to you that if you gave me, if you gave me 10,000 US bucks, I would come in and set up a 3D kinematic only system with training. And at 10,000 bucks, I don't think that's that. What are people paying for a shockwave therapy system these days? What are people paying for, um, uh, you know, these other, you know, crazy scanners and, and, and different things going? As, as dare I say, you know, I think podiatrists can afford that. Now, I will declare that we're probably going against everything I've just said about doing a kinematic only situation, but it's not going to be affordable for everyone to go and put a $150,000 instrumented treadmill into that clinic. Um, it's not going to be... But, you know, if you wanted a, an amazing solution and you're sitting there for saying for £36,000, I would put one of those solutions in and around like a um, something like a Zebras treadmill or something like that where it may not be synchronised, but you can get your 3D kinematics and you can get some plantar pressures happening from a treadmill as well and give you a really entry-level solution. Um, unfortunately, a, a fully simulated um, 3D gait analysis solution for running with an instrumented treadmill is going to set you back about 100000 bucks. That's really expensive, um, absolutely, and, I, and I've spoken to the supplier about that. I'm not sure there's much we can do. But if you then sit there and, and go and put a, a force platform into it, um, I, I think, in, and from a walking point of view, you're looking at about 20000 bucks for one of those. So for 30000 bucks, whether it's US, Aussie, I'm not sure, you could probably get a force platform synchronised with 12 motion analysis cameras and you've got a fully-fledged 3D gamer. That's that's for I'm anticipating less. What's thirty six thousand pounds about fifty sixty thousand bucks Aussie? That's um that's a hell of a lot less than what you're paying paying there. But you've got to be able to know how to do this. And if you're only got a kinematic solution with those motion analysis cameras, is that going to provide you a better um? level of service or understanding than what Run 3D can provide. Look, I haven't seen one of Run 3D's reports, so I don't know. I think Run 3D solution will be a hell of a lot easier for the novice clinician to utilise um, and to interpret because they're giving a guide there of, of where we should go, rightly or wrongly, and what my opinions are. There's a guide there. I think an experienced practitioner that knows how they're doing it from a modelling point of view, you can get your pipelines and happening. As long as you can interpret a gate lab, all you potentially need, if you're comparing a run 3D solution, all you need is 12 of those flex cameras um, and a licence to visual 3D. Um, Kylie's just made, uh, just, just put a comment on which is actually a really good point, which is, you know, and I think Craig already touched on it. Are, are the outcomes better though? So the question then becomes if you are a podiatrist, um, even 10,000, uh, you know, pounds, bucks, um, is a lot of money when you can point your iPad at someone with a free app. Yeah. And the reality is, uh, outcomes arguably won't be that different. Yeah. No, that's a great question, Kylie. Um, short answer is that I won't shy away from it. We don't know. Um, and can I hypothesize they are? Yeah. Um, 
like through my we we saw some wacky stuff um, with people that we actually excluded from um, and had to go and change uh, um, some some aspects in our piloting of different kinematic and kinetic patterns that would be influencing orthotic prescription. I would like to think, and this is where I think the future is going, and this is just my one opinion. At the moment, we have no conclusive proof that it's going to change clinical outcomes. Do I think they do? Yes. But what I think is going to happen is that in order for us to embrace 3D printing, which some inside knowledge is not that far away, and we're talking within 6 to 12 months, in order to embrace that, we need an understanding of how force is being applied within the foot. Because if we don't have an understanding of forces and the magnitude of forces acting at each point in stance, there's no way that we can fully appreciate or fully utilise something like uh, the ability to vary stiffness in different areas of the orthotic to create different forces in different areas at different times. So tell me how you're going to prescribe a custom foot orthotic with change in stiffness of materials that I look I'm big in in terms of manipulating stiffness without an understanding of forces being applied in the foot. You can guess. But sitting there, you know, six hundred bucks, seven hundred bucks, whatever people are charging for orthotics these days, is that a guessing game? Or do they sit there and go and have a hundred and fifty dollar gate analysis? 200, whatever people are charging, but dare I say it, at that sort of price, it's not really that required, and start to inform some of those decisions for you. So maybe you are doing less represses, like maybe you're doing less modifications. Maybe your patients are having improved satisfaction. I don't know. I'm going to try and investigate that, and I've got some people around me, but what I want to make sure, and and, and until I go to my grave, I'll fight for this every day, is that 3D data analysis never becomes a marketing tool, is that I'll only start to promote and advocate for 3D data analysis and continue to push it and push it and push it in search of improved clinical outcomes. If it doesn't start to improve my clinical outcomes or there's no evidence to it, I'm not going to keep pushing it in a clinical environment. It's an amazing research tool, but is its role in clinic? If it doesn't change the outcomes, there's not a role. But I'll never sit there and advocate it and go, yes, everyone should use it purely from a marketing tool. And that's my problem with how people have looked at video gate analysis is the marketing, 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 marketing. And that's the wrong approach because the patient's going to be out of pocket for it. And unless we can improve or say, yes, this is improving our situation, our patient's wasting money. Interesting you said that, Chris, because one thing I've said for, been saying for years, you've even noticed how much easier it is to convince people to part with money after you'd shown them a video of their gate. Oh, amazing. And I, I went through a stage where I was troubled by that because it wasn't affecting my decision-making. I had already decided what I needed to do or wanted to do, and that video wasn't helping me, but it was helping me convince them to part with money. Yep. And that forced me to start looking more carefully at what I was doing. Well, what am I looking at that does have the potential to change my treatment? So you, you narrow down on some quite specific things that you know can factor in your decision-making rather than just the marketing um, to convince people to give you money. You know, so, so, yeah, yeah and, and, and I guess look, one of the other things I'll add to that is that, you know, and I'll embrace some of, uh, you know, the clinical techniques that will look at how, you know, forces are applied within, um, you know, the foot and some of, you know, Kevin's techniques and resupination and axes and all of those things are important. But they're not dynamic. 
and you're not getting a dynamic in any measurement that you take. You're not getting a dynamic assessment of foot adaptation adaptation to load. You're not getting foot adaptation to load at speed, and you're not getting foot adaptation to load at um, at in, in a state of fatigue as, as well, or you're not getting it, you know, 10Ks down the line, 15Ks down the line. Do I think that video gait analysis is good enough in the coronal plane to be analysing, you know, motion? Yeah, it's not that bad. You're going to get an influence. You're going to get parallax error. You're going to get an influence of transverse plane mechanics. You know what? So what a bit. I, I've got a lot more qualitative in my video assessments than I am quantitative. But you do not get an understanding of, of force. And one of the things that I've been um, demonstrating or seeing in our gate lab over the past 12 months is a large change in centre of pressure displacement without a change in kinematics in the presence of fatigue. So we're running a big fatigue study. Um, we get people to run at 8, 10, 12 k's an hour for five minutes. We get them to do back-to-back 3K time trials, and then we repeat it all again. And so we're inducing a level of fatigue that's changing their performance by about 5%. Um, and... What we're, and we're looking at a running economy and we're developing a shoe around it. But what we're seeing is kinematics aren't changing, but a large force adaptation um, compensation is occurring. Tell me whether you can see that with video gate analysis or kinematic analysis. Um, I'll go again if that's okay, Craig. I've got yeah, another, yeah. another question. Um, forgive me in advance for not being completely up to date on the literature on this one, Chris. Um, but for those of us that, that don't use 3D and currently 3D is out of our reach, uh, have you noticed or is there any literature that supports things that we can do that we can access? So clinical tests or perhaps 2D observation mm-hmm. that, that seem, to, seem to correlate or even, dare I say, predict some of the things that, that you would find on 3D that we can then f- sort of infer without accessing the 3D? Yeah, it, it, it's funny you're saying this because... Um, in our, in our latest study, so we're going to have about 60 or 70 people in that study. Um, and what we're doing, and I'll just give you an insight of one, because I reckon I, I, I had this idea at about 2 o'clock in the morning, which I thought was a great idea, but it may be a 2 o'clock in the morning great idea. What we've done is, is we're taking everyone's ankle range of motion, okay, on a, both the dorsiflexion lunge test measured by needle wall um, as well as ankle inclinometer. And then what we're doing is going, okay, let's plot that relative to some, someone's ankle dorsiflexion stiffness in term of through loading or basically from initial contact to, to, to heel flat where you're looking at almost that control of soleus eccentrically decelerating forward tibial displacement. And what is it about that ankle joint dorsiflexion test? Does that actually relate to dynamic stiffness? What do you reckon the answer is? The spectrum is like that. It's a bell curve, which is like it. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so this is what we're trying to do when we run a research, <coughs> is we're trying to go, we do all the clinical measures, and if I had my um, laptop up, I would, um, I would, I would, I would pull up, uh, and I might, I might just try and find this for a second. But we, we run out the exact same um, form that... Um, I use in, in, in clinical in clinical practice. Um, I'll just give you one second. I'll try and um, I'll try and find it. Um, but we run the exact same form that we use in, um, in in clinical practice to screen all of our um, all of our patients. Okay, and then what we do is we sit there and just go right. Okay, well, what 
metrics and that and we don't use them for our inclusion criteria necessarily but we we get that so we've got the data that we've got all of our gate dynamic data and we can start assessing that relative to um uh like our static examinations so we take you know mtp dorsiflexion range we take a neutral and a resting cow position we take whether it's a four foot valgus four foot bearings now that's cute um we we take um you know ankle joint weight bearing measures we take limb links we take you name it and we take it you know we take truncated foot length foot posture all of those sort of things and over time, we're wanting to build a database that allows us to match someone's static features to their dynamic features. And we could be exploring this database for the next 10 years, but is there any relationship? And unfortunately, and I'm not saying I'm the only researcher out there and it's consistent with what every other good researcher is saying, there's no consistency. There's so much variability in, in the human aspects is that we cannot take one clinical feature and say, we are going to respond or you are going to respond this way. You have to encounter the whole box and dice with this individual and go, what is it about this individual that may be protective or not protective on loads? Then what are the loads being applied on this individual? And then match them up of going, when might these loads cause an issue? How do we potentially provide a strength and conditioning program to optimise the protective capabilities and improve the strength and neuromuscular control. Um, but when they run, that's an unknown quantity. And, you know, depending on surface and the shoes they run in and velocities and gait patterns and all of those sort of things, um, I just don't think we're going to get to that holy grail. Uh, well, I haven't seen any evidence that's even going to allow me to say we're going to get to that holy grail of being able to get a predictive pattern from our static assessment to reduce injury. I just don't think it's quite there. There's, there's, yeah. too, much, um, there's too much variation in the population. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, we've been going for about 40 minutes. I don't know if time flies. Um, you got any burning questions, Ian? Can, can, I, go, can I go one more? Can you see? I've got one more. Uh, one sorry, more. Pain. I've got one more, yeah. if that's okay. Is that all right, Chris? That, I'm perfect, mate. Um, I've got nowhere to be. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, Actually, before, uh, Ian asks it, before Ian asks the question, those of you who missed the start of this um, live broadcast, Chris has just come straight from the hospital uh, following the birth of a second child. So, he's, as he said, he's got nowhere else to be. <laughs> I'm actually about to head into the gate lab and do an analysis. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the, uh, the daughter's got priority. Last one, last one, last one. Um, we obviously now know the foot's complex. It's 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 a it's a multi-segment foot model that we now approach. We're, we're far on from the the historical approach of the foot just being a triangle on the on the end of the leg, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the three D systems that I've seen, and the main one that I've seen in the UK, essentially uh, just has one, maybe two markers. I think malleoli and and rear foot, and then obviously a lot more markers up the limb and unsurprisingly therefore when you see the reports it's it's incredibly uh, proximally uh, focused yeah you know, all problems are hip rotation knee etc uh, ultimately they have to be because they're not really measuring much else more distal now Correct. i don't know what what what, system, what systems you have or, or where you see the future of this going but at some point do you see do you see that changing yeah absolutely i i I'm not going to say I never model in um, the, the foot as a rigid segment um, because anyone 
technically will look at my, my papers and go, yes, you do. Because unfortunately, so at the moment, based on techniques, in order to model ankle joint or subtalar joint kinetics, however you infer this, but for me it's hind foot, it's talocrural, you have to assign the ground reaction force to a whole single segment foot. That's just technical, the way it's happening. Um, uh, Luke Kelly and the guys at UQ have started looking at techniques um, about isolating it to the midfoot, sort of post-heel rise and a range of other things. That's really promising because that will give us midfoot moments and first MTP moments. But outside of, of that, there is no, I don't think, you cannot get an understanding of the foot with a single segment model. We use a three-segment model um, or a combination of a three and a four-segment model. If I'm just looking at barefoot kinematics and just walking kinematics or even running just barefoot, I use the Leodini or the IOR foot model, which gives us an indication of rear foot, midfoot, metatarsal and first MTP joint kinematics. Where I, we developed our own model for footwear specific um, analyses because basically my aspect is whenever someone walks or runs, they've got a shoe on. Um, so we, do, we publish that in Gait and Posture. Um, but we, and it's called the Adelaide In-Shoe Foot Model. And we um, looked at, uh, we look at a hind foot, a joint midfoot, forefoot segment. So we do combine um, the, uh, the midfoot, you know, individual kinaeiforms um, and the metatarsals and then an MTP. Purely though, because it's a foot shoe complex model in terms of where the actual torsional stiffness of, of any midsole aspects, whether it's a truss stick, whether it's dual density, whatever it may be, it aligns almost perfectly to the actual tarsometatarsal joint. So for us, we define three joints. We define a hind foot, which we've changed the axis to influence the subtalar joint. We've got a tarsometatarsal joint, and we've got a first MTP. Um, so, yeah, from my point of view, multi-segment foot modelling is the way forward. You cannot get any inference of foot function from a single-segment model, even if it's just hind foot inversion, eversion. Because if you've got foot, if you've got markers tracking, you know, the first and fifth metatarsal as well as the calcaneus, you need at least three markers to actually model that. So if you've got a whole foot, your calcaneus, your, your first met and your fifth met are all moving, and the moving of all of those as well as all of the things in the chain there, are inferring hind foot motion. And that's not correct. So if you're tracking motion of the hind foot, all your markers need to be on the, on the hind foot. If you're tracking motion of the midfoot, your tracking markers need to be on the midfoot. If you're tracking motion of the first MTP, your tracking markers need to be on the hallux. Um, I think the industry is starting to appreciate it. It's a hell of a lot more complex. It requires better systems. It requires more markers. And it takes a hell of a lot more time. Um, but the detail, and that's, they're all excuses, which is why I'm sure people go, well, that, but it's probably only been in the last five years or so. Um, I'll say 10 because I know some of, you know, Chris Nestor's work's been out there for a while. Um, 10 to 15 years that people have started appreciating multiple segment foot modeling. Um, but a lot of the analyses are done higher up in terms of knee and hip. And if you're not under needing an understanding of foot function, then maybe you don't need it. Um, but I would like to think that any movement analysis, given the foot is the first thing that hits the ground, therefore the first thing that a force is applied to, that an adaptation of the foot is going to infer how that force is transferred up the kinetic chain. So I think it's pretty important. It's, it accounts for every one of my analyses, put it that way. Okay, thanks, Chris. I, th I think we probably should wind up now. My, my clock would be going for 49 minutes. So um, thanks again, Chris. Thanks for coming <laughs> straight from the hospital. <laughs> I, I, might, I might write that blog for you, Ian, and I might get you guys to uh, um, 
help me help me with that when I've uh, got a little bit of time now on maternity leave because I think as a and as adjunct to today, I think just getting some some pictures and detailed explanation and some different thoughts could be worthwhile for the uh, for the viewers. So definitely, yeah. Sure, great thing. Now, in case anyone's wondering what I'm doing at McDonald's, um, it's a private joke. When I got up this morning, we had no electricity. The whole area was out. So I was thinking of backup plans. I thought I could go and use the free Wi-Fi at McDonald's. So um, thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Ian. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me. My wife just told me I needed to tidy up my office. So, um, oh, is, she, is she watching from the hospital? <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, I, I didn't want to say, but that, that bookshelf, that bookshelf has been stressing me out for 40, 40 minutes or so. Get, get those in high order. <laughs> the problem is there's not one biomechanics book in that, in that book case, I don't think. So um, I'm not giving giveaways anymore. <laughs>